All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for uh, being here today. I'm going to try to get us off on a good start, not put you back to sleep from when you uh, started this morning and, and got up uh, today. Uh, I am uh, thrilled to be here to talk to you about interpreting the book of Acts. The book of Acts has been something that I've been passionate about for quite a long time. And um, several years ago, I signed a contract to write a commentary on the book of Acts in the exegetical guides to the Greek New Testament, and that's this series. This is the Luke volume. I, um, I cashed the final check uh, last week, which meant that I've turned in the manuscript and it should be coming out um, in the fall sometime or maybe early early next year. And so I have, I have spent quite a bit of time in the book of Acts uh, and enjoying every minute of it. I've also written an article on imb.org on both Luke and Acts that you can uh, access um, and be um, hopefully be uplifting for you. I want to talk to you, my, my task today is to talk to you about interpreting Acts. Um, the and so we're going to talk about hermeneutics. That is uh, our process, both big picture and smaller picture, of how we would interpret uh, the Book of Acts. Now, I've pastored for a long time. I've had the experience of a weekly ministry, and then, as one of my Presbyterians friends uh, incorrectly said, he said the Sabbath is always coming. And what he meant by that is Sunday's always coming. Now, they don't die on schedule. You know, you don't get that call, hey, pastor, I'm planning to kick the bucket on Thursday afternoon at a heart attack. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. I can do that. Let me get my sermon stuff done earlier in the week, that sort of thing. And so we have these pressures on us all the time. And yet, as Paul said, there's the care of the churches, right? And the care of those who are sitting under your teaching, you want them to get. And you need to be able to do the best that you can with the time that you've got. Amen? And then you have all the other pressures. You have families. Uh, you have your own personal crises that are going on. You have uh, administrative stuff. Don't we love administrative stuff? You know, you have to come and spin that wheel and all of that. So I, I get that. And so... Uh, the, the more we immerse ourselves in the process, the easier it gets and the faster that we can do some of the things that I'm talking about. To be able to give the best that we can with the time that we have, okay? Because here, here's, my, here's my goal for you as you preach and teach the Word of God. It's this, that your people get great content. Okay, I, we, if we spend more time looking for illustrations than we do digging through the text, we're not honoring God, and we're not feeding our people, all right? If we spend more time uh, on clever alliteration or, or all the, then these are important things in sermon delivery, but if we do all the stuff with sermon delivery or teaching delivery and we're not digging into the Word and giving our people great content, what eternal are we doing? Does that make sense? So with, when that pressure is, I, I don't have exactly all this time, where do you spend your time? I recommend that you spend your time understanding the content of the, of the book or the passage that you're dealing with. What they will feed on and what they will live on is the Word of God. 
And so the further we get from the Word of God, the less likely that we're going to have any sort of eternal impact on them. So this, this is my goal, is that we give you some handles on this, and as you, as you start, and uh, some of this you've already heard, you've been through seminary, you've, you've been to Bible college, and it'll be a refresher for you for that. But that's where I wanted to do. So our interpretation is going to be in view of moving from hermeneutics to homiletics. Okay, and so we have a section at the end of that that we talk about that I, that I pray I'll get to in, uh, in the time that we have. So with that being said, let's talk about some, um, there are some general procedures that we would have for interpreting the big picture. So this is before you preach or teach your series. I had the experience, I don't know if you guys have done this or not, you, you uh, Lord lays on your heart, I'm going to preach through this big book of the Bible, right? And so you, you, you get and you plan out, and really what you're doing, though, is that every Sunday you do the next section, and as you work, work through that. And then when you get to the end of it, you're like, oh, wow, now I really know how I should have preached this series. You ever been there? I've been there a lot. And so I'm suggesting some things that as you're finishing up one series, you be looking towards the next and saying, I'm going to be doing this spade work while I'm finishing up one and doing the other. So planning and forecasting uh, is what I'm talking about. And so when we have some general principles for the big picture. Now, the material that we're looking at in the first half of this is adapted from our book, The Cradle, Cross, and the Crown, I wrote the section on Acts. And so when I, when I mention the introduction, I'm, I'm talking about the introduction, that is the Cradle, Cross, and the Crown, 59.95 from Broadman and Holman. Um, go over there and get that. Is that book on the table out there with um, the, no? Okay. I'm offended. No, I'm not. All right, so that's what I'm doing when I'm referencing that. So in the general pictures, the, the, in our general procedures and in the big picture, um, we need to, uh, all the stuff that we learned in seminary about interpreting narratives and things like that, all that applies. Uh, and so there's some I want to highlight for us as we work through this. So first of all, I believe we ought to seek to understand how individual scenes relate to the purpose of the book as a whole. A narrative is built up in scenes. Different scenes are the backbone of the narrative. And these scenes work together to create a, to complete the purpose of the author as he is writing this text. And so we, we want to say, all right, so here's my scene. Here's the beginning. Here's the end of that. How does that work in the big picture? Okay. One of the easiest ones to look at is Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. It's the first and ultimate example of a scene in Acts relating to the rest of the book. Uh, Jesus' discussion with the disciple, first of all, sets the events of the book in, self, in a salvation history framework. The Holy Spirit is the Father's promise, sets the present time in an eschatological light. So Jesus says, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, right? And so the promise of the inaugurated new covenant is the indwelling of the Spirit. And so he says, wait for that. Thus the question from the disciples about restoring the kingdom, that's normal and natural. Okay, they, 
would expect that. Lord, is now the time that you're going to uh, restore the kingdom? Jesus, however, an- answer, hey, he really answers something like this, Nunya. Right? You know, so we'll take care of that. Stay in your lane uh, would be how I would translate that as a paraphrase that. But he continues the theme of God's plan began in the gospel of Luke. Why does only Luke have a sequel in the canon? Well, one of the major themes throughout the book of Acts is the plan of God. And over and over again, Jesus says, I must. Well, why must you go to the cross and die and, and be resurrected and uh, ascend to heaven? Why is that the case? Well, that's because it is God's plan. But God's plan is not over with, with the ascension of Jesus. His plan includes worldwide proclamation of the gospel. And so a sequel is perfectly natural with that theme that's very strong in the book of Acts. But most of all, Acts 1.8 defines the mission of the disciples, the power behind the mission and the scope of the missions. So as you know, he says power will come upon you and you'll take this gospel, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, this is, a, is not just an order, it's a prophecy. Because this is exactly how the book of Acts unfolds. And they do, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? Well, the book unfolds just like that. And so, and oftentimes, we want, we want to take a look that um, we understand the scene and how it works throughout the rest of the book of Acts. We, we think in that term. Second, examine the themes in the, in the heading, introduction, conclusion, and programmatic statement. Okay, so um, in, especially when a book has a programmatic... Now, this is programmatic, not problematic. And so where he's announcing his program in the both Luke and Acts, Jesus announces, well, Luke uses an Old Testament citation to describe uh, the program of the book. In Luke, it is the Nazareth sermon in Luke chapter 4. When he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your ears, right? So he's come to release the captives. And that's the, the program. As Acts, uh, Luke 19.10 says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In the book of Acts, the programmatic statement, and we'll, we'll come back to this a little bit later, it's also a sermon based on an Old Testament text. And here are three of them, Joel 2.28 through 32 and Psalms 16.8 through 10 and 110.1. The sermon is an explanation of the manifestation seen publicly at Pentecost. Peter's sermon has four movements that together explain the plan of God. And we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit later, but Peter asserts that the phenomena people observed marked the fulfillment of the prophesied gift of the Spirit. That's 2.14 through 22. He continues a citation of Joel 2 until he gets to, quote, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And so the second movement, 222 through 31, cites Psalm 16 to identify Jesus as the Lord upon whom they must call. And then he employs Psalm 110.1 to describe Jesus as both Lord and Messiah. So that those who repent and identify with Jesus Christ are forgiven, for the promise is for all. It's evident that these movements in Peter's Pentecost sermon set the theological stage for the book of Acts. So then, the next we would examine repeated themes, titles, phrases, and theological um, emphasis. There are quite a number of themes that are prominent. Peterson in his very fine commentary lists witness, prayer, word, spirit, salvation, resurrection, faith, repentance, baptisms, signs and wonders. Now these topics understandably occur rather frequently in Acts. However, it's not the, only the repetition of synonyms that are theologically significant. Luke also repeats similar narrative events that display important theological emphases. For example, Peter, Paul, Stephen, and Philip share similar experiences. So then things like commissioning, proclamation, suffering, teaching, and miracles. The, this pattern of activity among his main protagonists displays a prophetic continuity among the earliest Christianity and highlights the expansion of Christianity as a product of God's work and not merely a human phenomenon. One of the interesting things in the book of Acts, a little side note, had a missionary find out that I was working on a commentary on the book of Acts. He said, oh, that's great. Well, you and I need to talk. And they always want to do a joint writing project, which to me usually seems like oh, I'll do the writing and you'll read it um, sort of thing. Oh, we, we would want to learn missionary strategy and all this sort of stuff. When you read the book of Acts, one of the, one of the key themes that shows up over and over again is that the missionary strategy is do what Jesus tells you to do. just profound, right? We never think about that. You ever sit with your deacons and say, hey guys, we're going to ask God what we're going to do. And they're like, oh, are we down to that? No, we're up to that. And this is, this is the idea then out of the book of Acts. Every movement of the gospel into a new people group is done because Jesus did it. All right, so uh, we, when we start looking at these sort of things, we go, wow, yeah, I mean, maybe that's something that I could apply in my life. Lord, I think I'll ask you what I'm supposed to do. I, I recommend that. I can tell you as one who has spent some years not doing that, usually don't work out real well. As my dad used to say, how'd that work out for you? Not very good. You also want to examine editorial comments that interpret the significance of an event. Sometimes Luke will give a significant comment when he summarizes the previous narrative events. He's famous for his summaries. But more than simple summaries, these passages often highlight the, the, the church's growth and maturity. But sometimes these summaries are transitional statements and they add important information following the context. For example... In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Luke notes that, quote, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, this forecast, which comes after chapter 6, verse 7, there's a charge of blasphemy against the temple brought against Stephen in the following section in 6.13. 
Some suggest it puts Stephen's and Christians like him in a theological bind that these priests get saved. However, there's no textual indication of internal difficulties among believers on the subject. So, all that seems to be an assumption that the charges against Stephen are, are true. They are not. Luke, however, plainly calls the witnesses against Stephen false witnesses. And furthermore, nothing in Stephen's speech is particularly inflammatory against either. The picture Luke paints is of an enraged mob of a first century lynching. And when instead that idea of, of, of that comment about the large number of priests coming to the faith, it's more likely that reference is in the summary to show that many priests had no problem with the message of Christianity, in fact embracing it, serving to highlight that Stephen is murdered as an innocent man. So take a look at those kind of things. You'd also want to examine carefully all Old Testament citations, quotations, and allusions. Like most of the New Testament, Acts is saturated in Old Testament allusions and quotations. Uh, in the programmatic statement, it's in, in Peter's Pentecost sermon, he uses three of them. And so it's largely a, a citation and interpretation of these texts what is often missed is that when the book concludes with an appropriation of the Old Testament, that is equally programmatic. So in Acts chapter 28. So when preaching to the Jews in Rome, Paul ultimately cites the well-known Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. You will listen and listen, yet never understand. That's Acts 26 and 27. They depart debating. Paul's parting shot to them is, quote, Therefore, let it be known to you that this saving work of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And so that's 28, 28. Likely, this is an appropriation of Psalm 67, so that your way would be known on earth and your salvation among all the nations. So the combination of the illusion and the citation is climactic, explanatory, and in some sense recursive coming back to the uh, beginning if you will. It is climatic in that Paul has faithfully proclaimed the gospels to Jews and Gentiles alike through the Mediterranean world. And by appropriating the citation, Paul puts himself in the prophetic position of proclaiming a warning to Israel um, who has seen and heard the message. Its use here is the final parting word of Paul to the Jews suggests a completion, at least for, at least for Paul. It is explanatory and that Luke's point is to show the failure of the Jewish people to receive their Messiah, promised in their scriptures, proclaimed by their fellow Jews, is because of their own individual callousness, blindness, and deafness. And in no way rules out a future restoration of Israel. Yet there remains a note of hope. For even now, all, not all are callous, blind, and deaf because what he says in Acts twenty-eight twenty-four, some were persuaded. The citation is also recursive and it completes the first programmatic statement. The first citation was an offer to the house of Israel and to all nations to receive the gospel. That offer, patiently made throughout the Jewish world, has now largely been rejected. The citation highlights the fact that this was prophesied long ago. And the inclusion of the illusion of Psalm 67 shows the plan of God is in full force. God does not look down and go, if I had only known. It is not escaping him. 
it is, it is not invalidated by the Jews' rejection. As Dunn says, it is simply a, a phase in the larger purposes of God to include all Jew and Gentile within his saving concern. So then, through Paul's solemn announcement that the gospel has been, quote, sent to the Gentiles, the program announced in Peter's speech is ongoing. Nothing can or will prevent the spread of the gospel. So as we're looking at these, these are big picture things. As, we, as we're looking through the book of Acts, we're, we're asking these kinds of questions. I want us to turn now to some special issues that are located in um, Luke and Acts. And the first of these, um, that'll give you quite a bit of detail with this in your notes, is the unity of Luke and Acts. Now what do I mean by that? The... Um, the question is, there are some who will refer to, and you can see this in the commentary literature. Literature. So this is kind of a how to read a commentary. So if they refer to Luke and Acts, okay, what they're saying is that they are separate volumes and that there is not a unity among the books. If they refer to Luke slash Acts or Luke dash Acts, uh, they're saying that, that um, these are two volumes of one work, okay? So we address that in our introduction in, in terms of authorship and date and things like that. But the question of unity also affects how one interprets both Luke and Acts. So those who practice canonical criticism... I do not deny unity, but choose to interpret Luke in light of its position in John in the canon rather than um, its writing. So some suggest that the reception history of a document should guide our interpretation as well. This camp often thinks Luke and Acts are to be interpreted separately because they're separated in the canon or, and um, that sort of thing. And then they say, you know what, the early church did it that way and so should we. So then do we interpret the books along the lines of canonical criticism and reception history as un- or disconnected unities? Um, here's my solution uh, for this. We suggest neither should trump the intent of the author, both human and divine, as the books were written. In other words, the unity of Luke and Acts is a legitimate interpretive key as we investigate either book. But how do we understand this idea of unity? It is unlikely that we should consider the gospel of Luke as incomplete. And so, in other words, Luke is a complete story in and of itself, okay? So then, the, um, it does end with a future, Luke does end with a future promise of the Spirit's empowerment, so Luke 24, 49, almost verbatim of Acts 1, 8. And oftentimes we miss that. However, as Green points out, Luke has a beginning, a middle, and an end of the life of Jesus. It is a complete story. And so whatever the narrative unity, I, I like to express the, the narrative unity like this. And I'm going to use, I'm going to use cinematic uh, terminology, if you will. Uh, it is not like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. No, where you have these great 
epic stories and they go all the way to the end and uh, that sort of thing. Then you have another story and then you have another story that, that comes through. These are almost independent stories that you could pick up almost any one of those books or see any one of those movies and have its own thing, right? Um, I don't think, that's not, the, that's not the picture that I would use. I would use Rocky 1 and 2. Okay, so and remember, some of you are like, there's a Rocky one? You're so young. I got scars older than you. I know how that works. And so just don't come up and tell me I have poor self-image. So if, just kidding. So if uh, we think of it in terms of like Rocky one and Rocky two, remember how Rocky one ended? Right, so Apollo Creed wins in a travesty of justice. Everybody thought Rocky won that great. And, and, and Stallone ends the movie, Adrian, you know, and it's his love story and all of that, and the movie ends, right? But at Rocky II, what happens? The opening scene of Rocky II is the very last scene of Rocky I, isn't it? These two things overlap. And while Rocky I is a complete story, a sweet story, a love story, that sort of thing. The story actually continues in another way, doesn't it? And he picks up right there at the end. So they overlap. And we pick up with the story where Rocky actually gets his championship. Acts and Luke are kind of like that. Luke is a complete story in and of itself, but there are things that are pointing forward that we, we start seeing in Acts, and we look and go, oh, yeah, I get that. And in fact, as one writer put it, Acts is, is an inspired interpretation of the Gospel of Luke. And so when, they, when he makes that reference, there are some, some interesting things there. So I think we ought to think about that, these in terms of a unity. So manifestly, the book of Acts is connected to the gospel of Luke. Chapter 1, verse 1. The former treatise, O Theophilus, right? So manifestly connected. And, and in fact, Luke recaps the gospel, um, the, the gospel of Luke, in Acts 1.1. Remember what he says? All the things that Jesus began to do. All right, we ought to stop right here. Can I just put a little parentheses in here? We often describe the book of Acts, and we, we see this over and over, that the book of Acts should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. You've heard that before? Um, that's, that's only like half true. It's really the Acts of the risen Christ. Everything that happens is the Acts of the risen Christ. Uh, that's happened is the Lord is leading and directing his church so that when we read Acts 1-1, all the things that Jesus began to do, what does that imply that Acts is? The things that he is continuing to do. This is a major, major theme in the book of Acts. So he picks up where the gospel ends. Like Rocky Run, Rocky Two, and in fact, as Gene Green says in his very nice commentary, a single narrative of the coming of salvation in all its fullness to all people is what the Book of Acts describes. So I prefer the term a sequel, and it keeps the narrative unity and the completion of of, of Luke all together. So that leads us to three simple principles from the unity of Luke Acts. Um. It is, first of all, legitimate to search for theological unity throughout uh, the books. 
uh, L.T. Johnson says this, Luke provides the first authoritative interpretation of his gospel. So then, uh, it has often been stated the gospel has no concept of substitutionary atonement. And you'll hear them uh, say something like that uh, as they talk about the gospel of Luke. However, that is not true of Acts. The sequel certainly holds to substitutionary atonement. Paul states in Acts 20, 28, he's talking to the Ephesian elders, and he says, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Luke changed his mind? In all this, absolutely not. Which would say that those who would deny substitutionary atonement in the Gospel of Luke are wrong. And because the, uh, Luke inter- includes this, which is clearly substitutionary. Uh, so, it's legitimate to search for theological unity and, in fact, interpret the Gospel of Luke by some of the statements in the book of Acts. Now, it is also, however, in the Gospel of Luke, it's legitimate to see forward-pointing references in Luke that might be missed until one has read Acts. So... For example, John the Baptist proclaims, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's Luke 3.16. When we get to Acts 1, 4, and 5, um, and 2, 10 through 11, and 13, and 15, 8, and 19, 4, can all be legitimately read find his conceptual link to John's statement. Bach is certainly correct when he states, Luke 3.16 extends a shadow over the two volumes. And so then regarding Acts, these connections add context and meaning to the book. However, and here's one thing we want to caution against, we don't want to maximize intertextuality markers between the two works. And what do I mean by that? Well, both volumes can refer to an Old Testament passage independently. So, for example, in Luke 20, 42 and 43, and Acts 2, 34 through 35, both passages, rather independently, uh, cite Psalm 110, 1. A very famous passage, my Lord said unto my Lord, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. It is unlikely contextually that there's a link between Luke and Acts beyond the messianic content of that passage, okay? Um, so we're not going to try to create some, some other sort of links. The passage itself is overtly messianic and they are applying it in their, in their context. And so we're not necessarily linking those two passages together, um, the Luke and Acts passage together. So, likewise, both volumes could use similar terminology without necessarily forming a direct conceptual link. It's especially true for common themes. For example, both Luke and Acts make several references to Christ and David in the same context. It is unlikely that they all form a specific uh, connection and intertextuality beyond the Davidic messianic expectation. Instead, we should look for both contextual and linguistic markers to suggest a strong connection. 
So in here, um, Beal's uh, fine book on uh, handbook for exegesis where he gives a list of how do we say, how do we determine what is an in a, in intertextual marker sort of thing, I would uh, say take a look at that. Now, by far, by far, the biggest problem we have in the book of Acts is interpreting a passage, and we're asking the question, is it normative or is it descriptive? So, what do I mean by that? This issue is, how do we apply the text in our context? When, when I say the word net normative, what, what we're saying is this, that we come across a text and um, we read the text and we go, wow, that's different. Is then, does that describe something that we ought to do that is standard for Christian uh, practice today? That would be normative or maybe prescriptive, okay? But or is the text simply describing what they did or what happened without saying that this is normative? Um, and we would call that descriptive. There are several, several of these texts in, the, in Acts where some of, our, some of our friends and some of us have made that which is descriptive normative and have introduced heresy into the church, uh, if you must no. Now, the, um, so let's take a look at the process. How do we de determine this? Well, it regards discerning the theology of the passage. So does the experience of the Samaritans in Acts 8, 5 through 7 that received the Spirit significantly after they believe describe the normative experience of the believer? Okay, uh, most of our Pentecostal friends would say yes, and many others would say no. And second, it regards the practice of the early disciples. For example, does Paul's encounter with a demon-possessed young woman in Acts 16, 16 through 18 provide a template for dealing with the demonic? Does it teach not to accept the affirmation of the enemy? Does it teach waiting to cast out the spirit until one's spirit is vexed? A variety of opinions exist regarding this event. And this is a problem that's not unique to Acts, but it's especially acute here. For it is the, this is the only narrative in the New Testament apart from the Gospels. And we don't readily identify our spiritual condition with Jesus, so we don't look at Jesus going to a funeral. You ever say, well, I'm going to do things like Jesus did. What did he do at funerals? He busted them up. Rise, and we never go, yes, that is what we're supposed to do. And rightly so, right? So we, not, we don't really ask that question of normative or descriptive when Jesus raises somebody from the dead. But in Acts, you know, we're believers like they are. And so it's, it's common for us to say, okay, uh, does, this, does this actually become something that is uh, normative? And we rightly ought to ask that question. And we're more comfortable identifying with the apostles. So I'm going to offer you some controls, some rigor, some thoughts as we approach these texts. So here we go, the process. First of all, we need to admit the transi transitional nature, particularly the early part of Acts. Let me give you um, the um, example here. So the book of Acts takes place within a shift from the old covenant to the new covenant. 
The early church's awareness of the particulars of this shift does not seem to be particularly evident from the beginning. Uh, for example, the casting of lots that determines God's will. Remember that? So they're going to determine who replaces Judas. Judas apostatized, not that he died, it said he apostatized, wasn't really one of them. And so they need 12, and that 12 is that foundational number. And so they choose from among themselves with some qualifications. You end up with um, Matthias, um, who ultimately gets chosen, but he gets chosen by the casting of lots. Now, why do we not do that every fall during deacon election time? Lord, who do you want to be the, the deacon here? Throw it out. Right? Now, it is a legitimate thing in the Old Testament. Right? So, we see that um, in um, portions of Proverbs, things like that. However, it's only recorded at Jesus' crucifixion by Roman soldiers for Jesus' robe and a selection of Matthias to replace Judas in Acts one twenty six. So when similar choices are to be made, we, we look at the seven in Acts 6, uh, ministry sites in Acts 16. No such device is ever suggested for determining the will of God. So we're safe in insisting that the casting of lots is not a New Testament practice to determine God's will. The indwelling Holy Spirit surely makes the practice obsolete, although not necessarily wrong for the pre-Pentecost disciples. They are in an overlap period. So what do we do with Matthias? We count him as an apostle because the text does. Okay, it never says anything th that he doesn't. Now, the... Um, Peter, for example, there's some other things we can say, all right, you know, there's some sort of overlap things that are going on. So Peter has a kosher diet in chapter 10, uh, verse 15. All right, is, is that normative or descriptive? Okay, the early church's worship in the temple, the hesitancy to accept Gentiles as Gentiles into the church can all be understand from this perspective of, hey guys, we're in this overlap period. There's some things that they have to come, become aware of uh, as we're working through that. Okay, so um, we need to ask that question. Second, let's don't jump to conclusions. Okay, now. There is no hermeneutical textbook that's going to come to you and as one of their list is, number four, jump to a conclusion. You know, <laughs> nobody advocates that, right? But we all do it. And here's where we do it. We come up with them, we see something in the text and we go, that'll preach. <laughs> right? I, I see three points immediately. Cool your jets. Right? Let's patiently interpret the text to see that a lot of these descriptive things becoming normative and certain are simply jumping to conclusions. Um, getting the text to say what we want it to say. I give the example in your notes about sharing all things. So in Acts chapter 5, right, they, they are sharing all things. Nobody has a need for anything, right? So is that normative or is it descriptive of what they did? 
So in, in things like this, where we have, um, we, as we patiently read the text, as he's confronting Ananias and, and Sapphira, he, con, he confronts Ananias in, in about the property that he sold. He says, was it not yours to do what you wanted? So Peter actually affirms personal property in that text. What this text is describing is what they were doing. Okay, so it's not normative, it was descriptive. All right, so it's what they were doing in that. Now, some of these descriptive things, do you have freedom in Christ to do those? Yeah, right? So if you want to have a kosher diet, knock yourself out, right? No problem, go for it. But don't tell me I have to do that because at my house, bacon is New Covenant delight. All right? So then Jesus declared all foods clean. That is uh, the statement that makes it. And Mark. So then, uh, look, if you want to do that, fine. If you want to live in a Christian commune where uh, everybody shares things together, good luck with that. And what we see is the New Testament practiced that for a while and, and temporarily. Free in Christ to do that. All right? So that's, that's part of your personal living and, and that sort of thing. Some of these areas fall into that. But let us not jump to a conclusion that we want it to say. And quite a number of those who advocate kind of a Christian commune idea will point right to Acts 5 and say, see, it says we ought to do that. Or in that text, it says, it does, affirm personal property. All right. Number three, ask if the narrative presents the event as extraordinary. We can expect an all-powerful God to do things that glorify Himself by breaking expected patterns. If you minister long enough, you will come across something that you cannot explain well, well enough. Similar to the call to a close inspection of the text, this suggests that we look at the passage and the book as a whole to see if the event is out of the ordinary. And so, look, we look for overt statements and actions that are out of the ordinary. Now, nothing could be stranger than the modern church's preoccupation with prayer cloths. Have you gotten one of those in the mail? And this supposedly, and all the time they ask, they cite Acts 19.12. Quite a number of media evangelists have promoted their version of this item. This, this, and in Acts 19, it's a sweat cloth, right? So, when I see one of those, here's your prayer cloth, and I say, no, 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 this is a sweat cloth. Did you sweat over it? And then if you did, I don't want it. Uh, but in Acts 19, 12, it states, so that even face cloths or work aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and diseases left him and evil spirits came out. Does this reference support that modern practice? Highly doubtful. So in Acts 19, Luke describes the event in the passive voice. So it's unclear whether Paul was personally involved in distributing the items. I think unlikely. At any rate, the idea of healing power associated with touching something closely associated with an important person was a common belief in antiquity. Similar things are reported about Jesus and Peter. These are described as, and in fact, in the text, it describes these as extraordinary miracles. Now, get your mind around that. 
A miracle in itself, by definition, is something out of the ordinary, right? This is out of the ordinary on steroids. And this is how it describes this. And the word that he uses uh, to describe these as extraordinary miracles is a word that means not the first one you come along, come up to. Right? And so this out of the, just totally out of the ordinary, extraordinary. Okay? Surely something that's described as extraordinary cannot rightly be viewed as commonplace as often as it is. Look through the rest of the book of Acts for a repeating pattern. For example, um, in Acts 1, the disciples choose Judas' replacement by the casting of Lot. Um, We see that in the Old Testament, but nothing in the text suggests that the selection of Matthias was premature, unfounded, so rejection of the event as merely wrong is illegitimate. This is an Old Testament practice. It happens before the giving of the Spirit, but it is never used again or referenced again in the New Testament. So one of our processes, is there a normal pattern when they have to make a decision? Are they casting lots? They are not. Number five, look through the rest of the New Testament for straightforward propositional statements regarding the issue. The reception of the Holy Spirit by the Samaritans in Acts 8 is a good example. Uh, this pattern breaks the normal pattern in Acts. So in eight, Acts 8, 5 through 13, Philip preaches Christ to the Samaritans, and they believe and are baptized after the apostles lay hands on them. They obvi- observably receive the Spirit of God. And the sequence has been suggested as an affirmation that receiving the Spirit at a later point, subsequent to the faith, is norm for Christian experience. Now, I have a, a long discussion of this that, that you could read. Here's, here's what I would say about this. As I read the rest of the book of Acts, what I see is that things like the sign gifts and these extraordinary things are recorded in Acts when the gospel moves into new or significant people groups. Every one of them. And yet there are quite a number that are converted that this doesn't happen. So like the Ethiopian eunuch, right? So then uh, we, we look through the rest of it. We don't see a pattern like that going on. But what about the rest of the New Testament? Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul will say, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not His. And so... It, an understanding that would say that there's a period of time when a believer in Christ does not have the Holy Spirit does not fit that passage in Romans. So then, uh, how do we understand what's going on in in Acts chapter 8 where the apostles come down? This is the first expansion outside of, of Judaism, of Christianity. And so, uh, so now we're in Samaria. We have these half-Jews, if you will, receiving the gospel. God does something extraordinary to bring the apostles there to see this and to affirm, absolutely, God is doing this. Okay, so we see a reason for it being out of the norm. So I look at the clock. I have about 15 minutes or so to get into the next section. Um... I'm going to give you some principles for interpreting individual scenes, okay? 
So unfortunately, I have to go a little fast on this. I had this is an adaptation of my work that's called "Preaching the Farewell Discourse," um, which is a homiletical, a hermeneutical, and homiletical walkthrough of John's uh, farewell discourse. It's uh, highly technical, but it does have some um, this this stuff in it for you. So when you come across an uh, individual scene, how would you interpret that? Now, I'm not just talking about interpreting the scene. I want to help you preach the scene. I want you to tell the same story that it's telling. So this is not the only way to do it. This is my way, therefore the accurate way. But there are a lot of ways to do great sermons that are biblically based, okay? So, so let, me, let me just say that, but... Um, there are hermeneutical things that, that you should do, and I'm going to run through these fast, okay? So, it, you need to examine literary context. So, you read the whole book. Please read the whole book before you start preaching the book. This is from a word of experience, more than once, all right? All right? Then identify the genre of your section. So, are you dealing with a narrative are you dealing with, with a speech or a letter that's trying to get you to do something? That would be hortatory. Are, you, is, are they arguing a thesis? That would be expository. Uh, sometimes there's a procedural genre that's not in the New Testament. So I just put that there for re reference. So is it narrative or is it hortatory expository? The hortatory expository stuff are going to be things like sermons and embedded letters and speeches. Okay. Narrative is when it's a simple story. Do a pragmatic translation. All right, if, if, you, um, if you know Greek, if you had Greek, do, do a translation. Take a look at that. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be slick. As I tell my first-year Greek students, caveman English is okay for us. We're not, we're, not doing, uh, for, we're not translating for public consumption but for understanding. So go ahead and take a look at that. If you do not know Greek... Learn Greek. Just saying. We'll get in that a whole other day. But until then, look at a lot of different translations, especially uh, conservative uh, translations. Don't be using your precious moment Bibles for uh, that kind of thing. And then identify the movements of the text. Okay, so what moves the story along in the text? Now, the structure of individual narrative scenes. A narrative scene, this is when it's a story, right? Usually have two types of basic plot structures. It will be a problem resolution narrative. This is when there is a problem and a solution to the problem. Okay? Uh, so you'll have a setting, time, character, place, all that sort of stuff. The problem will be stated. There, there, when you have a parenthesis, that's may or may not be. So may or may not be a complicating factor. You know, um, there may or may not be a resolving incident. Something happens that gets to the solution. Like the little boy brings the, the fish and the bread. That's a resolving incident. Uh, then there, is, there will always be a resolution and a problem resolution narrative. And then there may or may not be an after effect that happens. So uh, what, how did the crowd respond? What did the disciples say? What, what happened after that, right? That's what we're talking about. The other is called an occasion outcome. This one's more simple. Uh, there's a setting, there's an event that happens, and then there's an outcome to the event. 
Now, the difference between this and a problem resolution is the resolution. So the event may be problematic, but if there's no solution to the event, then it's an occasion outcome. Does that make sense? So then there may or may not be an after effect in this. Now, when I'm, when I'm preaching a text, and I'll, I'll do this in just a moment, uh, when I'm preaching one, one, a narrative text, I'm look, generally looking, I don't do it all the time, um, but I'm generally looking for the structure of this to be the structure of my text, of my sermon, right? In an expository sermon, everything about the text ought to be reflected in the sermon. Everything. So then that would mean that the movements of my text are the movements of my sermon. Right? You want to tell the same story, don't you? Um, and so uh, I will actually use this to develop my outline. How many times have you just agonized over a text? Oh, Lord, give me an outline over this text. Just struggling. You do this and you wide paper up and you're throwing away. You're cutting and deleting all over the place. How many have done that? Yeah. Few honest men. The rest of you are lying. <laughs> Just kidding. You wouldn't lie at seminary, would you? No. Yeah, we've all done it to a certain degree or whatever. Well, let me tell you something. I discovered way too late, God has already given me an outline. And my job is to discover it and use it for my preaching. Okay? This is, on narrative text, this is often what I use. Now, Next thing you want to do is examine the literary context. You want to read the cursory reading of the whole text, the whole book, identify the text type. So is the book a narrative or is it like Romans? Um, identify the genre of your section. So is it a narrative or is it a, is it a speech or a letter? Do your translation. Identify the movement. We said all of that. And the next thing we do is we identify the flow of thought. Now, if this is a, um, a speech or a letter, then there's a then there's a flow of thought that it doesn't work on those narrative scenes where you have the problem resolution all of that. There's a flow of thought. So, the next thing you do is identify the historical context. Basic task to complete. Notice I have archaeological tools here. So now we're digging in there. You want to investigate perspective. Okay, well, let me, let me define this. I got that term from um, Craig Blomberg in his excellent book. Here we're asking what are the shared presupposition pools that we know about between this, the author and the reader, the first century reader. And what, what happens on this is that in communication, we often have shared presupposition pools. So today, if I, if I, if I were going to refer to the vice president, I can use that term and you know who I'm talking about. But somebody watching the video 30 years from now, we're going to say, what year was this? Because in a different context, that's going to be a different thing. We have a shared presupposition pool. You're that guy watching the video 30 years from now going, what president is this? What vice president is this? Right? So, these are the shared presupposition pools. Sometimes it's language. You know, sort of thing. So, for example, in Acts one nineteen, the word hakeldama, which means field of blood in Aramaic, Luke actually translates that for us. So, what, that, what does that mean? Well, that means his writer, his readers, don't read Aramaic. 
And it kind of gives us some, oh, well, there's, there's some things we could learn about that. The next is you investigate the mindset. Now, we have to be very careful here. Somebody who died 2,000 years ago, you have no access to what they were thinking. All right, I get so frustrated with biblical scholars who um, crawl into the mind of somebody who's been long dead and tells us exactly what they're doing and then has this, this exegesis based on that. Please, no. What this is really about is are there cultural, ele- environmental elements, you know, things like political, civic, or religious institution, maybe laws that explain how somebody is acting. For example, in Acts 22-25, Paul's question, is it permitted for you to um, scourge a Roman citizen? They have him stretched out and they're ready to start wailing away and he asks this question, right? Created an instant stir among these Roman soldiers. Why? Well, the text never mentions it, but it's strictly illegal to beat a Roman citizen without a guilty verdict. Their actions, what did they do? They backed away like Paul had the plague. They're like little boys who had hit the ball through the window, right? What do they do when they hear the crash of glass? They run. These soldiers just about guilty, almost. Incredibly guilty. And they stop immediately and... and, and um, very conciliatory. Their mindset, right? So now we understand why they're acting like that because there's, there's something external to all this that we can... That's what I mean by investigate the mindset. All right, then finally, investigate historical events. If the text is mentioning something outside the text, some historical event, then we have a legitimate duty to look at what that is. So, for example, um, Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila in uh, Acts 18. He meets them at, at Corinth, and he says that they had been ejected out of Rome, evicted out of Rome by Claudius. Okay? That's a very famous thing. That is the edict of Claudius. And so, why were... Why did Claudius evict all the Jews out of Rome? Well, Tacitus tells us it was the instigation of one Crestus. Everybody believes that that's a garbled understanding of Jesus. So what was going on at Rome? Jewish Christians preaching the gospel in the synagogues, creating rites, and Claudius says, all of you get out of here. So what does that tell us about Priscilla and Aquila? Probably some of those that are preaching the gospel in the synagogues. That's cool, if you must know. And so, um, yeah, so that's appropriate for us. We then identify the canonical context. So, you know what? The New Testament is a unity. The Bible is a unity. So you identify the canonical context. So what do we mean by that? You need to investigate covenantal dimensions, okay? Um, Bible is both Old Covenant and New Covenant. So interpreting the different genres of the Old Covenant require Christian exegete to discover both the original meaning and the Christian appropriation of that meaning. In the New Covenant, that's our subject, we're dealing with the latter of the progressive revelation, but in many ways it grows from the Older Covenant, and understanding it helps in finding the correct interpretation. 
So sometimes understanding the context of an Old Testament quotation or an allusion benefits in interpretation. At other times, it is a specific fulfillment. And the New Testament is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Covenant and is produced in the society that the Old Covenant generated. We do well to pay attention. Um, that Acts relates the overlap between Old and New Covenant should always be close to our mind as we interpret it. The whole issue of can Gentiles come into the New Covenant as Gentiles is, um, had to be spectacularly um, revealed to even people like Peter. Sees that sheet coming out of heaven, rise Peter, slay and eat. No, I've never touched anything unclean. Of course, there I'd been snarky and said, Peter, you're at a tanner's house? You're touching dead bodies? Right? Uh, Peter's wondering what's going on. Knock on the door. People from Cornelius' household. And Peter's like, oh, is this, a, is, this a, is this a witnessing opportunity? He goes down and shares the gospel. They get gloriously saved and he is blown away by it. Never occurred to him that Gentiles could be saved as Gentiles without entering the Old Covenant first. Investigate those covenantal dimensions. Then you investigate the theological dimensions. Here is where we branch out and we start taking a look at different things. The Bible is a book that is the work of God. Amen? And so then, as it is the work of God then the entirety of the New Testament should be used to help us to understand the theological uh, dimension. So yes, we look throughout the New Testament for similar themes and similar topics, that sort of thing. We also, it would be a good idea to take out a, um, a conservative, Bible-believing, systematic theologian and look if your passage is mentioned in his scriptural index. Maybe there's some theological theme that you didn't, didn't connect to. I would always do that. All right, I've got about five minutes left to go. And I, you have this in your text, but I just want to show it to you. I want to move from hermeneutics to homiletics for just a moment. Um, I, am, I am a hacker at preaching. I, you know, so my expertise is New Testament. I love to preach. I love to um, uh, communicate the Word of God uh, to laymen. And so I uh, don't present myself as an expert here. So I'm not going to go beyond the outline of your text, okay? The professionals like Tony Morita will do a much better job in terms of developing uh, within the outline. But uh, let, me, let me tell you, that's where I'm going to do. So let's say you're preaching a self-contained unit, okay? A uh, self-contained unit uh, is where the point of the text is in one scene, Okay? Um, a, in a non-narrative text, a, and this one's hortatory, a text like Peter's Pentecost sermon, the outline of the text, and you can find that outline in the Exegetical Guides to the Greek New Testament coming out sometime 1995 from Broadman and Holman. All right, so the outline of the text has four major movements. All right, so Peter identifies the event, that it's the coming of the Spirit. Peter proclaims the resurrection, uh, scriptural support for the resurrection of the Messiah, and the implications, okay? Now, my sermon on this then, I've identified those movements. I'm going to make the movements of that text the movements of my sermon. 
So as I preach Acts 2.14 through 36, my topic is going to be the foundational appeal to Israel and to the rest of us. Okay? So then... Um, I'll have an introduction where I introduce all, all the different things about the text. I'll, I'll always ask the question, pose the question, why is this important to you? All right, so I kind of set the hook, if you will. All right, so then I will, uh, my, my text, my sermon outline then is the promised spirit has come. This is what Peter says, the promised spirit has come. Two, the foundation is the resurrection of Jesus. The Scriptures promised it, that is the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit. And you should embrace it. Okay? So, because my text has four movements, my sermon has four movements. Gasp. Right? Well, only Orthodox sermons have three points. You've got to save room for your poem, preacher. I don't do a lot of points. But because my text has four points, my sermon should have four points. Well, that means pacing is a little difficult as you respect the time of the people. I get that. And then in our conclusion, I make a gospel appeal. Really easy to do that. So see what I did with that? I identified the movement and what the movements are doing, and then I transposed that to my text. Okay? In narrative scenes, I'm going to go back to the structure that I gave you. So in Acts 13, 4 through 12, this is a problem resolution narrative. This is where Paul meets up with Elimus the sorcerer, strikes him blind, right? So the main point of the text is that the missionaries encounter and overcome demonic resistance to the gospel. And the main point of the sermon is that we will, that we will encounter and should overcome similar resistance to the gospel. Now, I'll give you this in your stuff. This is my structure of the text. I have a setting, a problem, a resolution, and the after effects. Okay, so I've broken that up for you. And then my sermon then is going to follow that. My sermon is called Wolves in Sheep's Clothing. Okay, so in the introduction where I have the setting, that, that first part, I'm going to handle that in my introduction. I'm going to do that every time in the introduction. And then, um, so the problem, the wolf will hinder the gospel. And we see that in Acts 13, 6 through 8. Then the wolf will be exposed and opposed by the true shepherd. We see that in 9 through 11. Now, Paul strikes him blind by the power of the Holy Spirit. I do not suggest that that's what you should do. The Lord leads you and enables you, go for it. But... There are other kinds of opposition, so in developing it, right, so we do good stuff with this. The third, then, is the discerning person will embrace the truth. Sergius Paulus comes to the faith, right? And so my structure of the text has now become the structure of my sermon. I'm telling the same story. I'm unfolding the story and explaining it as we go along. Now, finally, um, there are some more complicated structures. Many units make their points across multiple scenes. And it's really, really hard to t- preach or teach just one scene because it's not a self-contained unit. It comes, goes across a couple of scenes. When that happens, I would consider preaching the whole episode. Now remember, this is not the only way to do it. This is a way to do it. Uh, I think it's a good way or I wouldn't be um, telling you about it. Consider preaching the whole episode. 
I'm going to give you an example of Acts 16, 16 through 34. Okay? My preliminary observations of the text is that the episode is made up of two scenes. The first is the occasion outcome scene in 16, 16 through 24. This is Paul's uh, little demonic possessed girl is coming behind Paul and saying, these men are telling, you know, all this sort of stuff. He gets, he gets, finally gets upset with it, uh, turns around, casts the demon out of her, uh, and he gets put in jail. Now, the text, there's something problematic in the text, and there is a solution for the little girl, right? It's a problem, she has a demon, and it gets cast out. But the text isn't structured where that is the issue that's going on. The text is structured where that is the event that puts Paul in jail. Okay, so we have to, we have to look carefully. Uh, don't do a knee-jerk reaction to a problem and a resolution. Read the whole text, okay? Um, so I, I give you my breakdown, okay? Now, this, this whole scene then introduces the circumstances of 1625 through 34, um, which is the next scene. It's a problem resolution. The problem is not Paul in jail. The problem is that there's an earthquake that opens the door. Now, this is a very famous Philippian jailer. You know where that is. Um, Paul cries out, don't harm yourself. We're all here, right? Um, so um, the problem is that earthquake, complicating factor, darkness, all of that. The resolution, Paul cries out. The after effects is the Philippian jailer who, who gets saved in this, brings Paul in and he washes off all his wounds and all this sort of stuff. My sermon outline on this, my text, uh, my topic is the devil's attempt to silence the gospel. Okay, so two parts to this. The devil's plan is trouble. He, he's going to stir up trouble. So stage one is a deceitful commendation. If you'll notice, each one of these divisions are the divisions that I outlined to you. Stage one is a deceitful commendation. This girl is out there saying, oh, this man is... And when you read it in the original, what you see is that she's not saying, he's telling you the only way to get to God. She's saying, here is a way. Smorgasbord, if you will. And she doesn't mention uh, the God of believers. She says the most high God in a, Jew, in a pagan context, that would be Jupiter. And so open to misinterpretation. Right? This is exactly what we'd expect the devil to do. Right, as long as Jesus is only a portion of the buffet, he wins. Right? So then, because they're never going to choose Christ, they're going to choose the stuff that suits them. Right? So an attempt to lull believers and placate unbelievers is what's going on with that. The apostolic response is exorcism. All right? uh, the second stage, then, is an attempt to discourage the evangelists in 619 through 24. Um, uh, you have... The, the, they bring out the lictors and they're going to cane them and all of that. And then there's an attempt to silence the evangelists by putting them in jail. Okay? So these, these are the plans that are going on. The divine plan, however, is triumph. With the, what the devil meant for harm, God says, I got this. And I'm going to turn it to good. And so the divine plan is triumph. The apostolic response, they're in prison. Now, if I was in prison, I'd be singing, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Right? I'll spare you by not singing it now. The apostolic response is praise. The divine interpretation, uh, intervention then, is that earthquake opens everything up. Those open doors become a platform for the gospel. The guy says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's like, is this a witnessing opportunity? 
shares the gospel, his whole household responds to the gospel. All right, guys, I've tried to be able to give you this to help you bring the thunder. The thunder is when you're communicating the word of God accurately. All right, let's do it, okay? Thank you very much.